You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Dr. Lee Vinsel. Lee is an author and historian of technology. With his co-author, Andrew L. Russell, he wrote a book which is the focus of today's conversation. The book is titled The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. It's my pleasure. So in your book, The Innovation Delusion, you make a distinction between actual innovation and innovation theater. How can we spot the difference? Oh, man, that is a big topic, I think. Um, we introduced the con the, this difference between what we call actual innovation and innovation speak because people assume that we are Luddites and like anti-technology. Um, and it, that has nothing to do with it. You know, it's like not like we're anti-new stuff. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I have all kinds of new stuff. And, and right. so it's not like, you know, and, and we're very grateful for the kind of deep innovations that have, you know, changed our life since 1850. There's just so many we can name, like modern life is beautiful in a lot of ways, right? And that's come through technological change, you know, just to hold up antibiotics or like vaccines as examples. Or Zoom. Right? Or Zoom, right. The fact <laughs> that we're doing this, the internet. That's right. Um, so, but we do want to like question the way we've come to talk and think about innovation, which we consider an ideology of innovation in like since after World War II. So the way we, we decided to talk about that was actual innovation. That's deep, usually deep and incremental technological change and business model change that introduces real change into society. That's actual innovation. And then what we call innovation speak is the way we've come to talk and think about you know these things since the late 1950s basically right and if you use the google ngram the free tool and you put in innovation it's just like a from the late 50s until the present it's just like an uh, uh, until 2019 when ngram cuts off it's just like a curve that goes up forever right we're hearing right. more and more chatter about innovation but there's really deep questions about like what, how much actual deep innovation we're getting right now. And since the 1970s, you know, so that's kind of the wedge we wanted to go into the book with is like, let's think, talk about how we've been thinking about this and, you know, where maybe that thinking has led us astray versus the actual technological change. And then we also need to think about, you know, the technologies we have built, like electricity systems and all these things. We also have to keep those things going. Right. So let's think right. about that. So uh, in your book, you talk a little bit about Clayton Christensen, who coined the term disruptive innovation. Yeah. And so first, let's start. What does that mean? And is this something we should pursue? Yeah, I mean, great question. Because so disruptive innovation, let's define it first. Disruptive innovation are new business models or technologies that upend existing ways of doing things, sometimes whole industries, okay? So we don't have blockbuster video anymore. We have Netflix, right? I mean, you, you can, innovations can obviously kill industries, right? right? That, that happens. Um, now, I don't think it's always a good thing. I think a lot of benefits have come through those processes. You know, it's not like, I can't think of any 
um, you know, this formerly disruptive innovation that I would want to do away with or something. <laughs> right. Let's go back to renting video. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, there's two problems, though, at least two problems. The first is that there's no evidence that chasing disruption, even though that was like a big idea, has actually induced any more disruption. I, I'm actually kind of like a libertarian or like Hayekian on this theme, you know, like wh which is to say, like, I don't think we can plan this stuff up, actually. You know, like no one foresaw Netflix when we inter introduced the Internet. Right. Like or when we when we commercialized it in the early 1990s. Um, and so I think like a lot of innovation thinking of this sort, like we can plan out disruption or like chase it or something like that is just just not a very realistic way of the world. And then the other problem is that when when people looked at Christensen's social scientific data, it turned out that, you know, like only nine percent of the cases that he talked about as disruptive innovation were actually fit his de definition of disruption. Right. So it was just like an empty idea. You know, it was not a well-founded theory. One yeah. of the challenges I had with it, just trying to understand it and even apply it is, well, no, that's not disruptive innovation. This is, and it's things that you would sort of uh, colloquially say it disrupted and it was innovative. For example, Tesla doesn't fit his definition because it's an expensive product. It all, it, the theory is it yeah. always has to start at the margin where it's super cheap. And I don't know why that is necessarily something you would have to pursue. Yeah. But Tesla is not disrupting the, you know, it's not like we worry about the big three going away or like Toyota or VW, you know, I think Tesla plays a really interesting role in, in the EV market. And I think it's very important for the historical trajectory around EVs. But fitting like any rigorous definition of disruption, Musk is not disrupting the auto industry, right? Another uh, uh, luminary on innovation is Richard Florida, who wrote a book yeah. titled The Rise of the Creative Class. And he argued that a new social class is responsible for the wealth of cities. And so how would you recommend civic leaders who want to increase prosperity in their jurisdictions apply his advice? Uh, don't probably do the opposite <laughs> of whatever he said. <laughs> well, that's a, I love that question, man. That's a good one. Uh, no, I mean, I think what we see, so, I mean, I always talk about it as like, you remember that old movie field of dreams with Kevin Costner? Yep. So, you know, it was like you build the, the baseball diamond and the old ghosts show up, you build it and they will come, you know? And I always think of Richard Florida as like, uh, field of dreams for hipsters you know it's like you build rebuild the city and have like yoga studios and coffee and like bikes to get around on you know um and the hipsters will show up and then they'll create economic growth for you mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and i think that this yet again i mean you're, you're with christensen and florida you're in the book where what we're doing is we're questioning the role these so-called innovation experts which we call put in quotation marks are playing in our culture Right. They're often consultants like these two guys are design thinking, you know, another example of consulting stuff we talk about. That's not to say all consultants are bad. I'm not like anti consultant. Many of my friends are consultants, uh, but they, you know, like, uh, you know, I think they have incentive to oversell ideas about how to get good stuff in our society. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And there's no evidence that like the creative class recommendations that Florida uh, push really got us what we wanted. And in fact, our cities have become much more unequal mm-hmm. through this process. You know, I don't want to blame that on him. Um, some people do, by the way. Um, but, you know, I think that, yeah, I can stop there. Um, well, you did raise the topic of, of design thinking. Yeah. And uh, it's also in the book, as you point out, uh, taking uh, Steve Jobs as an example, he did not try to empathize with his users yeah. very much. He seemed to come up with these ideas out of whole cloth. Yeah. Uh, Henry Ford famously said that you can have a Model T in any color so long as it's black. I mean, these are people who have had enormous success who said, let me solve an engineering problem and, and then we'll see if, if people like it. This is in contrast to design thinking, which has received a lot of attention as a method for tapping into customer desires. Yeah. When is design thinking most useful? Yeah. Um, you know, I have a friend, uh, Lily Arani, uh, who likes to point out that Jobs was wrong to one degree because it's not until they really hired good designers at Apple that some of their products took off, right? Look, I think that design thinking should be thought of in the long history of how corporations get to know their users that goes all the way back to like General Motors and, you know, uh, Alfred Sloan and people like that, you know, who like there's a whole history of how corporations try to understand what people want. And so I think that, you know, when you when you think about design thinking, it's often this kind of consumer facing interface driven stuff that, you know, people are going to be touching a lot and like using in that way. And so maybe it makes sense in like the consumer electronics space or something like mm-hmm. that. I think it's a terrible model for thinking about like how innovation works in large firms where it's like engineers doing like incremental change. You know, sometimes you're working with a bunch of different departments and they don't know how to communicate and processes like design thinking can be helpful to get them to talk to each other. Right. You know, it can be useful, but I just don't think this kind of design driven vision of society, which you see everywhere, like in TED Talks and all this stuff, has a really great understanding of this really boring incremental technological change in large industry, which is where most of our economic growth comes from, frankly. Mm -hmm. It's just boring. It's engineers being engineers and being very boring and improving things over time. (laughs) That's modern life, you know? Um, Let's change gears a little bit and talk about... um, in the in the book, you I don't think you necessarily I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you do you do talk about the link between innovation speak or innovation theater and environmental damage. Yeah, that that we're that we're sort of creating stuff to be novel and not thinking through the impact we're having. Uh-huh. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean it comes up. So I'm not sure it comes. The environmental message comes up in a couple different places in this topic. So. If I start talking about one case and you want to think about something else, just let okay. me know. I mean, I think that one place it comes really through really clearly, and this comes out in the so-called right to repair um, world, people who push for corporations to um, open up repair so that, you know, we ourselves or local, you know, repair people can fix our stuff, is that the way that... Um, Companies like Apple, we can talk about Apple a lot today if we wanted to, 
uh, you know, like are very, become very dependent on creating gadgets that they sell and then resell that you need an iPhone like every two years, right? Every two or three years, yeah. And they, these are very kind of environmentally destructive objects in lots of ways. You know, um, one factoid I've seen is that it takes about as much energy to make a phone as it does to charge a phone for 10 years. Wow, okay. You know, yeah. like there's real environmental impacts to these objects. And so one of the best things we can do environmentally, and this goes for our kitchen appliances and everything else in our world, is just keep them going for as long as possible. You know, in some cases that applies to cars too, by the way, mm -hmm. you know, like some, in some cases it can be more environmentally destructive to like create a new EV, which is what we should all be driving now than it is to just keep the cars that we actually have on the road already going. So that gets to be like a really difficult trade-off, right? Yeah. Well, let me, let me try an idea on you because uh, it's a bit heretical, especially when I'm talking to an environmentalist, but I think you're much more of a pragmatist than just an environmentalist, yeah. I may say, um, yeah. is that Really, it boils down to the more money you have to spend, the more damage you're going to do, the more extraction you're going to do. I mean, if you want to do something for the environment, take a month off, right? Because then you'll <laughs> yeah. have less money to wreck the world with. And, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if I drive a 20 year old car that mm. has been smog checked and, you know, it, yeah, am I doing more environmental damage than if I buy a new EV? Right. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think. I would like to see like my friends at Carnegie Mellon who do like real engineering analysis about these specific kind of questions, do an analysis of it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I would not be surprised if the analysis said, keep your going, you know, like you are doing less environmental damage by keeping it going for as long as possible. And then buying the EV when you need to replace it, then, right. then you would like doing a cat cash for clunkers program and like, taking a bunch of old cars off the road and moving to EVs, right? There might be, there might be a reality where that's just like, it would be worse to, to, you know, just make a bunch of new stuff. So I think you're right. I mean, this is like Vaclav Schmiel to talk about pragmatists. Uh, he is one of my favorite guys on these kinds of things. He's a very numbers driven analyst. And he is always talking about what you just said. Like <laughs> you're spending money is like the thing, right? You know, like whatever you're doing with your money. So it's tough. Um, so connect our fascination with innovation with our failure to maintain our systems and our infrastructure. Because there seems to be a very sort of disposable view on infrastructure. It's always fun to cut the ribbon, but it's no yeah. fun to repave something. Right. And I think it's literally true. I mean, we argue this in a couple places that we call it the ribbon cutting paradox that it's easier for politicians to get credit for um, doing something new than it is for like things not falling down. Um, <laughs> so that might literally just be like a kind of bad economic incentive or however you want to think about that. That's there. Yeah, you know, man, I think it's like a lot of these questions. It's so interwoven with our culture, you know, like America, you know, like just our the modern culture, these questions are, you know, they're, they're just in it. So, you know, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that like, if you look at us, it looks like one way of reading the fifties, the seventies, that we used a lot of governmental power 
to like rapidly grow and build up, including the suburbs and all these highway systems and stuff, you know, and we really, you know, and we do that. We, we use federal money in all kinds of ways to like build new bridges and stuff still. Right. And yet, so this is like Chuck Marone of Strong Towns has done analysis showing that like because localities can get federal money to build a bridge, but they're on the hook to do the maintenance, but it's like down the road, mm-hmm. they have the wrong incentives to like build the bridge, even though he shows that in a lot of places there's like half the tax money coming in from the population that you would need to keep the bridge healthy over the long term, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that growth obsession, you know, that's this obsession with growth that you see throughout our culture, you know, whether it's quarterly reports or whatever, um, really becomes kind of like a, you know, we we chase things without thinking about how we're going to keep it up is, is how it's played out with infrastructure. But I think it plays out in other parts of life, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you and I both work at universities. It's often easier to get money for a new building than it is to get money to maintain the ones you have. Yep. Yeah, um, I mean, like, you know, Virginia Tech's building a $1 billion innovation campus for Amazon in Northern Virginia. And, you know, I can take you on a tour of like crumbling buildings on campus. And it's not like, it's not, as you're saying, it's not just Virginia Tech. That's like schools and lots of places. Yeah. So. So uh, Greta Thunberg describes our drive for constant expansion as fairy tales of eternal economic growth. That's a quote I got from your book. Yeah. Is sustainable development an oxymoron? You know, I have very conflicting feelings about this. And you're asking me a question that's still like a question for me is like, what is the balance of growth that you'd want ideally right and so like i have a date to with studying the books of all the degrowthers who are writing right now um and i'm looking forward to that date i just haven't done it yet you know it's going to take like a month or something and so i'm interested in that i mean there are arguments out there right now that what we have to do is just ungrow things right mm-hmm. um and it goes along i mean it's you can get there very easily from what you and I were just talking about, about money and the environment, you know, like if, if just spending is destroying the environment, then it's like, well, what you actually have to do is bring things down a bit, you know, but like, I, like, I don't know, that's an argument. I also hear like that, you know, I see mainstream economists just freak out about the idea because they're like, you're just, you're going to kill millions of people, you know, hundreds of millions of people um is you know their reaction but like i don't know if these people are actually like studying each other and like trying to have a conversation or they're just yelling at each other so i have more homework to do um so so much of what we read about in here feels like a tragedy of the commons Mm -hmm. right that um absent mechanisms to stop people from creating things that are going to decay and not be funded or absent preventing pollution or even, even setting rules that say, you know, if your houses are a mile apart, you're going to need a mile of sewer per house. Right. Thinking these things through. um, 
And you had a quote. I want to I want to get this quote right. You said Americans and this is a quote. Americans aren't pulling their good idea or putting their good ideas to work in a systematic way that benefits all their fellow citizens. Hmm. End quote. So this reminds me of a Franklin Roosevelt quote. He said, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide for those who have too little. Hmm. It strikes me, though, that most Americans, and I will admit Canadians too, are putting their good ideas to work in a way that benefits themselves. Mm. So what should we do about that? Oh, man, that's interesting. I mean, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think you're putting your, your finger on something really difficult for our culture in general. And... I have a buddy who I talk about degrowth and other topics of this sort about. And he is like, he's like one thing he pointed out the other day is we love to talk about big oil as like the big petroleum companies. Right. But we don't really talk about how, like the reason it's all like this is because we're every day, we're all out there driving. Right. Right. Um, And so I, I think that this is, this is true, you know, and it's something I actually found. I wrote an earlier book called Moving Violations, which is a history of automobile regulation. And one of the things I argue about in that book is we don't really like to regulate corporations, but we will do it given enough trouble and yep. like years of trouble. But the one thing in the US we're not willing to do, and I don't think, and I think we're not alone in this, is we're not willing to regulate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I just think that's like, you know, I think that's the way it is. I mean, the only thing, other thing I would say though, is like, even in this state of like tragedy of commons, it's still a very unequal country too, right? Like some people have benefited much more from our current way of doing things than others have. Yeah. Um, and so I think we got to keep that justice issue in, in picture, even when we talk about how, you know, in a sense, it's all of us. Okay. So let me, let me bounce an idea off you that it's kind of a, 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 I I tend to be, I think the term is reductive. I make things as simple as possible. Yeah. So we we live in a world where, I mean, we're both in in capitalist democracies. Yeah. And you could, some people will debate debate whether it's a true democracy or a true capitalist society, but close enough, right? Yeah. Probably among the world's most capitalist democracies. Yeah. And if you have more money than I do, you have more votes in terms of money. But if you and I both have a vote, we're equal on that footing. Yep. But the problem is that the people who have the power to really take advantage of the, of the commons have the money to manipulate politics and manipulate public opinion. And so your vote becomes less and less important. And yep. also if there's no taxation, what are you voting for? Like, like in America, they say no, no taxation without representation. You have representation yeah. without taxation. What are you voting for? Right. Right. And so, I feel like the pendulum, that pendulum could swing back a little and yeah. just say, no, well, actually we're voting for clean air and clean water and, and yep. good infrastructure. And yeah, that can, that can exist in a capitalist country. And has before, right? I mean, we've had the progressive era. We've had moments where, you know, people got off their butts and like got together and created change in various ways. So yeah. it's not unthinkable at all. Um, yeah. 
I mean, the only thing, you know, like what worries me, the more pe the, a pessimistic way of telling the story you just did. And I think about this in other parts of my work. It's not very much in the book, but let's just, you know, whatever. I think the scarier thing for me is it's like the Koch brothers, for instance, are they were not effective at getting the laws changed that they wanted, you know, like they mm. threw billions of dollars. They're they're effective with Alec, which is like the state level um, group that tries to change laws to to make corporations happy that that was very effective. But like the big national things they wanted, they didn't get that because it's like, you know, it doesn't matter how many billions of dollars you spend, people aren't going to go for that. Um, and so, you know, like I, it's not that I totally agree that corporate power is a real problem when it comes to the to money in our election system and everything else. But like some of the difference you've seen in my country, at least the, the partisanship is not just about um, is not just about corporate money. Sadly, I really wish it was because that would make the, the solution simple. But I think it's like some of the things that keeps important things from happening, like climate change, for instance, are like becoming more socially complex than that, unfortunately. Interesting. Well, so my interpretation of that is that um, you're given an impossible choice and boy, or boy, am I running a risk on this show with politics, but <laughs> we don't have to admit which way we're heading on this yeah. issue, but like, you're either in favor of a woman's right to choose or abortion. Right. If you if you revoke either one, like if you're in favor of one or the other, there's an awful choice you're making about somebody else. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. And so you're put in a position where you kind of have to choose. And once you've chosen that, oh, you're on one side about uh, supporting uh, coal production or not. Like right. for some yeah, reason. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so you, you, you get caught where you, you have to, if you go, if you walk into a store that has Pepsi on the, on the sign, everything in the store is going to be Pepsi. And if you walk into one that says Coke, everything in this, you know, is going to yeah. be supplied by Coke. And those are your choices. Now you've gone all inclusive. That's it. Yeah. And I think like, that's why, like, um, for instance, evangelicals who are pro pro life, but um, are, progressive when it comes to economic policies and stuff like some of the people you find at like the American conservative magazine are like this not all of them by any means but you find these weird hybrids out there you know and I think that like you would even find some democrats who like are catholic or something so they're or pro-gun pro or, or something yeah, or, uh, yeah, yeah. definitely definitely pro-gun thank yeah. you <laughs> lots of pro-gun democrats yeah. But like that is not the, I think that that's a harder and harder position to maintain in our society, unfortunately, including because you get your ass kicked by your supposed friends. If that's you right. voice like the, you know, yeah, either side, there's all these purity tests. It's, exactly. it's terrible. There, no, do, it's you totally remember, do you remember, do you remember an ancient movie called Green Card, Gerard Depardieu and Andy McDowell? He was he was I like, remember, uh, yeah, my parents were big fans of this movie, but I don't remember. I don't think I ever watched it. There's a, there's a line where he's talking about politics and, and left wing or right wing. This is the trouble with America. You're always trying to fly with one wing. Right. And I, I thought that that was 30 that's years true, ago. Probably. That's and, true. I mean, that's another thing, you know, like so we do write about this guy, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, and he's like, in a sense, like a pretty big character in the book, mm -hmm. like people, you know, in a sense, we use Chuck's vision of infrastructure to set up this idea of like forgetting to consider maintenance 
you know, which right. also plays out in corporations and in our pr private lives and all these things. What I, one of the reasons I like to write about Chuck is because like in many ways, I'm like the most boring progressive professor you can imagine, right? I mean, I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000, okay? <laughs> like I am so boring, it is like unbelievable when it comes to my politics. But Chuck Marone is a <clears throat> conservative Catholic libertarian from in Minnesota, who lives in like small town Minnesota. You know, like we are not alike when it comes to a lot of issues and political issues, but I've learned a tremendous amount from that guy, yeah. you know, and Gracie Olmstead um, is a, an example, is a woman who we write about at the end of the book. She's an example of this kind of like pro-life progressive person who thinks a lot about maintenance for a variety of reasons um, having to do with her life um, in rural spaces as I do. And I want to talk to those people because like I want to learn from them. You know, and I think that the interesting thing about this innovation maintenance stuff is that it kind of allows us to open up conversations that can't happen normally. And that's something I really love. Yeah, that is interesting. It's almost like you notice a new problem. You don't know what side of the aisle it's supposed to be <laughs> exactly. on. Right? Yeah. But it, I, yeah, it is a, a striking contradiction for a libert libertarian to take such an interest in public infrastructure. Right. I mean, isn't libertarian a viewpoint that we can dispense with public anything? Well, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so you got to remember that Chuck is a city planner and like, you know, and it was an engineer before he was a city planner. So he's been very uh, involved with the growth machine around like, you know, building strip malls and crap with federal money. Okay. Um. But yeah, I mean, I so I think that he would he he had a copy of Hayek's Road to Serfdom on his desk when I was at his office. And I would think that like he's very skeptical of public investment in infrastructure, right? Because he thinks part of what it does is it encourages malinvestment, mm -hmm. that it creates bubbles effectively, yeah. right? And that's what we see when we look out at these like all like, you know, where we've stuck walmart and all those stores in town right is is like is, is malinvestment they get they go bunk bust and like they get ugly and you know think about malls and stuff so yeah he's very skeptical of of federal spending on infrastructure i am not so much you know i have a different position on this my position is that we should start switching more of our federal spending on infrastructure to maintenance mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, and this is coming from Chuck's own numbers. If it's true that we have all these cities in America that are like, um, you know, like there's half the tax revenue that you need to just to keep what's going up there, yeah. then one answer would be just use more federal money to to keep stuff up and looking good <laughs> with. But and this is where the growth stuff comes in. And a lot, we have depopulated a lot of places in the United States. So a really difficult question is where, what do we do with the infrastructure in those places where maybe like the population is cut in half? Sure. So, I mean, I that was part of the reason I like about this stuff is it asks these questions like you're asking me that are for me, real questions, mm -hmm. you know, like the morality of like basically trying to shut down a small town, telling people to move or like, you know, what we're going to do in those situations is not easy. Okay. Yeah. And I don't have any simple answers for that. So another 
pet theory and and the, some of these pet theories just come out of me not really knowing how things truly work but but right. hear me hear me out on this when you own a house you pay a percentage of the value of your house the notional value of your house in tax I imagine the same is true of commercial real estate. If, you're, if right. your building is worth 10 million bucks, you pay a percentage of that in tax. But if you're sitting on an acre of barren land, your tax is very low because your property value is very low. Right. And yet everybody has to keep driving past your property. You have to run sewers past the property. Mm. What if, you know, and so what we're doing is we're, we're um, if we want economic activity, which would result in property values going up, we are billing for the numerator, not the denominator. Oh, that's interesting. So what if we charge for acreage or at least gradually uh-huh. uh, shift from one model of, of value to acreage and just get to the point where you choke out parking lots and Walmarts? Yeah. So it's like an incentive that like encourages density, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. I've never heard someone spell that out before. It's a cool idea, man. I like it a lot. It might work in a downtown core, and then you could sort of gradually move out. Yeah. Make I mean, you know, Manhattan. like part of this is is technological change, of course. Part of this is about automobiles. Mm-hmm. You know, like during the the period that Marone kind of looks at to a kind of golden age of city planning, which is these towns built from like, I don't know, late 19th century to 1940 or something like that, generally, right? tend to be walkable i imagine they're walkable yeah. right and so they're you know like to the degree that they're a, a city um you know it's something you can move around very easily um and and so yeah and then we have the car and we have all the ways we've used federal money to um to subsidize car ownership right mm-hmm. and there's just so many whether it's cheap fuel and like not having really taxing people for the roads appropriately. There's so many ways we've subsidized automobile ownership, you know? And so Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of the equation too. It's a fertile field, this whole city planning thing, because we're on the cusp of having some opportunities to change things a lot, right? Mm -hmm. You could debate with me, and I'm sure you are less Pollyanna than I am about how soon it'll be almost all EVs and how soon we'll have autonomous vehicles. But I think we can agree yeah. at some point in the future, we will. And I have a theory that when we have autonomous vehicles, that will really change our perspective on private vehicle ownership. If mm-hmm. I go to Mexico on a trip, I don't necessarily rent a car. I'm like a newborn right. baby. It's like, what, what options do I have? But if I own a car, I'm never going to take public transit, right? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. So if I don't own a car, do I necessarily be, need to be in a cab or can I take public transit? And hey, whatever my phone tells me is cheapest, I don't care, right? Yeah. I won't even think about it. And That's so that could really trigger a lot of changes to the way we design cities. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of yeah, looking forward to seeing My only question there would be what we've seen happen around Lyft and Uber. Mm-hmm. where we've seen like VC money, like just burning to keep prices <laughs> down for consumers. Yeah. Which the, you know, the, the, that's the only risk in a, that I see is that people will, would make, would end up choosing the, the EV or the, you know, thing because, because the structure is set up to make it seem the most appealing, you know? Sure. 
Though I think that people, you know, you will use Lyft and Uber to get somewhere across the city and not the subway because the VC money has been used to keep the floor so low on the prices, you know? I wonder if that can last forever, though. Even VCs oh, run out of money. I don't eventually. think so. <laughs> Dude, no, I mean, that could, we could go on the whole, like, you know, all the Grubhub and Lyft and all this, like, this is another problem that we try, we're trying to address in the book, right? Is like what is being called innovation today and is getting all this VC money is not a lot. I mean, not that there's no deep technological mm-hmm. change going on. I would never say that. But a lot of these things that are highly valued right now are not that. You know? Yeah, a lot of them are just, um, it's like chlorinating the pool. I'm bigger than all the organisms I want to kill, right? right? So if I have enough money, I can outlast you in this acid bath. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and, then, and do damage. I really, you know, I, I think they are, you know, doing damage to things like public transit, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think there's another shoe to fall there, though. If we're using EVs all the time, then we're not using as much oil. If there's not as much oil, there's not as much tarmac. Mm. There's not yeah. as much road tax. And so governments are going to say, you know what? We got to we got to have a road toll everywhere. Right. And don't lie to me. I can see your autonomous vehicle keeps track of every every yeah, real yeah. <laughs> rotation. Totally. Right. Yeah. And so at that point, it would be cheaper to be in a bus than in a car. Yeah. And I also I mean, yeah, here's another way we could think about this. We could also use these new technologies if they come in fast enough as a moment to create smart policy around them. Now, right. that gets back to what we were talking about earlier about corporations and money, of course. As soon as these, you know, all these digital companies are very involved in lobbying and stuff. So it would be a real fight, potentially. Yeah. But you could imagine, you know, if there was a social movements came ar- together around these kind of progressive causes or whatever, you can imagine smart regulation being written about around EVs yeah. or whatever. And I think you can also imagine different jurisdictions doing different things and going oh look what they did in what they did in cincinnati is awesome we should do that right people start voting for what they see as a good example i mean yeah let's make an argument for the federalist system where we have like experiment multiple experiments going on at once and see what works you know what what is it let a thousand (laughs) flowers bloom is that uh Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I don't know, it was like Woodrow Wilson or one of these characters like talked about like the laboratory of democracy or something like that, you know? I was actually quoting Chairman Mao when I said I know, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I know. (laughs) If if Woodrow Wilson and Mao have something to say to each other, then maybe maybe it's close to true. (laughs) All right, so speaking of uh, presidents and technology, this is right from the book. In 2000, Bill Clinton said, I believe that the computer and the internet give us a chance to move more people out of poverty more quickly than at any time in all of human history. Yeah. Is he wrong? Yeah, he's wrong. I mean, this is like something I'm, so I'm starting to write a new book that's in a lot of ways about like the so-called new economy of the 1990s and like what was happening with computers and why we are suddenly getting a lot of productivity, new productivity change improvement in the 90s to like 2004, mm-hmm. right? And then why it's been much slower since then, okay? Um, 
I think that the internet and here's my, this is my working hypothesis. I'm going to try to test this in all kinds of ways, including by continuing to read stuff on economics about this. I think, and Robert Gordon says this in the rise and fall of American growth, that there is a real productivity group bump around these computing technologies, kind of when Clinton's talking. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what that is, I think is just people adopting things like email, um, uh, Microsoft office <laughs> spreadsheets, these really for the basic, win. yeah, spreadsheets yeah. and like these really basic things. And you get a bunch of productivity. Like, like, you know, the old story is like, you know, professors didn't have secretaries anymore. They did their own correspondence. I think you get real organizational change around these things is what right. happens. And then, you know, what no one could see, including people like Robert Reich and all these people talking, writing about the new economy in the nineties and early two thousands is it didn't last forever which is basically what you'd expect uh, mm-hmm. from technologies is that, you know, like interchangeable parts didn't get us growth forever, right. you know? Uh, machine tools didn't get us growth forever. Like there is a period at which you get like this thing. And then, you know, I think that, yeah. So, I mean, like over the long term, Clinton has been wrong. Like, I don't think there's any way to argue that like, for instance, I would say like the thing that's gotten out of us, the technology if you want to think of it as technology that's gotten us out of poverty more than any other technology is mass production. Sure. Or depending on your definition of poverty, agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. Agriculture. <laughs> uh, we like food and, and roofs over our heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, you know, cesarean section, cesarean section is like a very important basic thing, but like, yeah, it would be something like that. It wouldn't be the internet. And I think that you see it in the growth statistics. This is what people have a hard time with, right? Mm-hmm. I think because, including because like our politics are, I'm holding up a cell phone so yeah. at the end of the video, uh, because our politics and our identities and all these things are changing around these new devices, you know, like how I even think about myself. If I'm like an Instagram person, I'll be like going through life and all of a sudden I'll be like, hey, I should totally like do a selfie here. This is going to be great. Right. Or like, you know, like I get into my crazy, you know, left bubble and you're in your crazy right bubble when we're on Facebook and we're just like getting really pissed off all the time. I mean, I think there's all kinds of ways that these new technologies are caught up in real changes in our culture, but it's just not showing up in the economic data the way you'd expect it to when it right. comes to productivity and such. Does it matter how we measure productivity? Because some of it could be just that the bounty of it is so unequally distributed that yeah. the, the measures we were following before to say, oh, okay, everybody has two cars now and everybody has a bigger house now. And that's rolling over right. because of the, the widening gap that we're seeing. So here I looked at people like Susan Hausman, um, who looks at like automation and manufacturing for the last couple of decades. And for a long time, there was this narrative that like what was going on in manufacturing when we look at all these numbers was just like rapid automation with robots and stuff, you know? And she's looked at the data and found that it's like mostly a measurement error in, mo- in part what it's really driving all what it looks like the productivity growth is just like computers, okay? 
it's the one industry. If you take computers out, the computing and electronics industries out of the data, you don't get this change. There's not rapid change happening. And what, what's happening around computers and electronics is because of the way we measured it, it was like the chips getting faster and faster was actually getting measured as productivity growth. Is another factor offshoring of labor? You know, your productivity, totally. yeah, your productivity yeah, yeah, yeah. in North America goes up because everything that's five bucks an hour, you're sending offshore. Amen. Yes. So, I mean, that's kind of my book. The book is like a new history. It's a history of the American economy from like the 70s to the present, right. looking at technology and jobs and quality of life, too. Um, and so I think that, you know, and this is like, you know, David Otter and other folks who write about this is the economist, David Otter. He looks at automation and AI, but he's also has this project on what he's called the China shock. And it's like how hard chi like Chinese manufacturing hit the American economy. Sure. And it's really profound. You know, there's just so much unemployment and suffering and drug use and all this stuff has come from just getting totally walloped by, um, by that. Right. And is another, so, so we could say, for example, we, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but we could say, for example, that, um, you know, automation, comp computing, and offshoring was contributing. But then maybe the argument for the 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 uh, the rollover that that you see in productivity could be that there's nowhere to offshore to anymore. What I mean yeah. by that is you've got the Asian countries kind of doing the hand sandwich, like, oh, I'm not the cheap market anymore. I'll get Vietnam to do it. I'm not the cheap market yeah. anymore. I'll get Bangladesh to do it. And eventually, this is actually good news that other nations are yeah. pulling themselves out of poverty and aren't willing to do things quite so cheap anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting point. I don't know. I mean, like, why is, you know, China has this great interest in Africa for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, is that partly about labor? Um, well, yeah, it's about labor. It's about materials. It's about a market. It's yeah, yeah. it's everything. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 20 years when it comes to these things, for sure. For Let's sure. put it that way. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of the next 20 years, uh, I turned 50 recently, so uh -huh. I hope to see another 20. And I shifted my focus from self-improvement to self not getting any worse. <laughs> and that seems to be yeah. the prescription you're making for developed countries is uh, stop growing and start fixing what you've already got. Yeah. I think again, I'm not, you know, like I have growth is a question for me, a real growth, real, real question about how much growth we want um, and need in quotation marks. Um, but I do think we have to do better as a culture at maintaining the stuff we have already built. I mean, I think that's just obvious in all kinds of ways, right? Yeah. When we just look at around us. And so that's the argument is that like, and I actually think, you know, like green new deal ideas, like if you built renovating houses and main, you know, up giving them a facelift and like making them more energy efficient in the mm -hmm. process, for instance, would be a huge gain environmentally. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's ways you can actually combine these kinds of things, you know, to think about better renovation and maintenance and things like that. 
and them serving these larger values we have, like social justice and the environment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly at this point, it's hard to offshore fixing your roof. Right. Um, yeah. and, it, and it's and it's uh, also hard to automate. So, I mean, the money that you you put out there is directly impacting. It's improving the local housing stock and providing jobs locally. So you have right. a friend in the in the government now who seems to want to spend money in that direction. Uh, yeah. Is it already happening? Do you see? I, I, I feel like the money has been announced, but the projects have not. Yeah. So I don't know. I really should be talking more about this thing, you know, with other people like this idea that I've talked about a lot, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's being pushed. I, I would hope so. It yeah. seems like a no brainer to me. If you're going to have like a, a new deal type jobs push in addition to um, rehabbing infrastructure or whatever we're going to call it. Right. Is to, yeah just remake some of our private capital too and improve it. Mm -hmm. um, so. so you reference a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, who describes recognition as a basic human need. Mm -hmm. You connect that to the way maintainers or people who conduct maintenance rarely get the spotlight the way innovators do. Why do we have this imbalance? Yeah, I mean... This is a very deep cultural question. And I think it goes way, way back in, in, in our culture. Like at least when I say way, way back, I mean like to the 1850, right? Right. Um, not like zero. Well, um, but that's interesting too, right? Because to an American, 1850 is way back. It is for me too. I'm Canadian. Yeah. But if I was from Europe, <laughs> like right. I have clothes that old, right? right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, I mean, I think it has to do with, there was a cultural transformation around the valuing of invention and inventors and engineers that happens in the mid 19th century. Um, you can see it with like, there's a pretty good book on this called Heroes of Invention, but I think it's Christine McLeod. You can like in the 18th century, uh, in, you did not want to be inventor. That's a very low status job, right? It really? was for losers and like yeah. uh, frauds and stuff. Um, and then what she shows is that by 1850 or so, you know, like this is massively changed. There's a, there's technologies are um, changing and engine, you know, engineers are being lauded because of the quality of life changes they bring and all this kind of stuff. But then I think that, you know, that, that long history, and we can keep telling it through Edison and all these characters, right? I think that long history then connects to the innovation story we were talking about earlier, what the rise of innovation speak in the post-World War II period. And I think that, you know, then when innovation is kind of like the, the sauce that improves all things, right? Um, even though I don't think we should look at it like that, um, because it's a sauce that improves all things, including economic growth and making your corporation more profitable and making you a more successful individual. I think that culturally, we just get pulled to these symbols as like, you know, you can think of all kinds of people. You can think about Jobs and Musk. When I when I ask students to tell me to list innovators for me, I do this at the beginning of one of my classes. They, it's all white guys. It's all mm. like these uh, famous white guys, right? Um, which is not, it's just like something to remember, I think, that that's mm -hmm. true. Um, 
I think our attention got pulled there through all kinds of processes, some of which make sense, by the way, because innovation was getting us economic growth and changes in quality of life, you know? So it's not like you want to throw it out. Um, but I think that that's one thing. And then I think there's also to talk about maintainers as like a servant class in a lot of settings. It feels like that, you know, like in my building, for instance, the janitors who work in my building wear uniforms of um, pretty basic ones at this point. They're still kind of marked out as other. Right. Um, and so I think that then you get into this, like these very deep cultural, how do we learn this stuff? I talk about a sociologist who looks at a children's book to show how like the occupations are kind of like mapped out, you know, different animals are high status and different animals are low status. And so our parents are teaching this, this. And I think that sure. happens in all kinds of ways. Right. So, yeah, I'm sorry. That was long winded, but no, that, that that's interesting. Yeah. I guess we're all biased against non-mammals or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to, I want to talk about that book, moving violations that you wrote. Um, mm -hmm. I regret I haven't read it. Um, <laughs> I have read this cover to cover. This is a good book. Thank this you. Is, uh, the Innovation Delusion, everyone. Um, but you explore the impact of experts and regulations on the automobile. Mm. Are there themes in that book that, that relate back to the Innovation Delusion? Do you see delusions going on in there? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> this is a little abstract. Let me start off abstract. What I try to do in the, in the conclusion of moving violations is I try to like um, spell out a, like a, it's like an economics of attention. It's a theory of human attention and inventive activity actually, or work, you could think of it that way. And what, I'm, what I say is like, I, I show how through the history of automobile regulation, um, there's various moments where we use different government and policy tools to shape attention and work around auto safety and right, you know, like emissions and all these things in different ways. Um, and often what we're dealing with, and this goes back to our earlier talk about conversations and individuals, is that there's some kind of externality, there's some kind of harm being done by the technology um, that, uh, uh, that we wanted them to deal with but they're not dealing with for profit reasons. They're shaping attention in all kinds of ways, getting engineers to like make cars more comfortable and you know make you want them, design them up, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they're not dealing with like pollution or safety, these things that we wanted to work on. So then we use we use these structures to um, you know uh, to get them to work on what we want them to work on. So I think the the, the connection to the maintainers. Mm -hmm is that I think there's all kinds of incentives that are pushing us towards this growth delusion stuff, this chasing innovation, often very superficial innovation, in, instead of taking care of what we have, right? I think so, there's like, so this is like, you know, we have this piece called like, why don't we maintain, why do we not maintain things? It's on the maintainers blog. I think there's like, we list like eight or nine reasons why we don't maintain things. Mm -hmm. It's everything from human psychology to like economic structures, right? That induce like short-term thinking. So I think that, you know, if you think about like corporate leaders, for instance, they're held up to like the quarterly report, right? you know, it's an insane, it's a, it's a structure there. It, there's a certain economic structure that's getting them to focus on certain things like 
chasing the innovation that's going to let them show growth that quarter. And so I think that that's the connection for me with the moving violations book is like, what we need to think about then are like the structures in our society that are leading us to like, you know, produce app iPhones every whatever. And then, you know, we need to use regulation to mm. um, shape those things. Cause right. I don't think that like, I don't think that Apple's going to move towards like a circular economy model, <laughs> right. Where they, where they just give us phones that can be like, uh, repaired for a decade. Right. Right. And then can be truly recycled, like taken apart and everything's reused. They're not going to move in that direction at all. That was a very extreme version of it, by the way, but sure. they're not even going to move that in that direction at all without some kind of pressure. You know, yeah, I, I mean, you, you did point out in the book that Apple did briefly try a program to replace right. batteries and, and regretted it almost instantly because it dampened the demand for the next phone. And so that is, I think, a perfect example yeah. of, the, of that kind of tragedy of the commons is like, whoa, you know, we can set a regulation that says you have to make it possible to replace the battery or yeah. whatever. Right. The problem is it get the regular and, and actually that is instructive because car uh, regulations are extremely detailed. Yeah. Right. But do you want to be the guy who's going to come up with policies on how you, how replaceable a battery is going to be when in fact the battery form factor, the chemistry, everything could change in a week. Yeah. Like that's right. dizzying. Totally. Um, I, yeah. I think, I think maybe the, it's as simple as the right to repair. I mean, if I have two phones and one of them's busted or both of them are busted, but different parts yeah. are busted, I should be able to have one phone at the end, but the way Apple's yes. working, you, it, I, I, do you, do you watch, or was he even in the book, Lewis Rossman? Do you know who mm -hmm. that is? He's, no. he's a right to repair guy. And he's all, his shtick is on YouTube. He just complains about how stupid apples are. Nice. He's trying to fix them. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's found circumstances where he, he can, Oh, you got it. Okay. You'll, you'll, you'll <laughs> like him. Uh, I'll send you a link. He, he shows on one video that he took a part, an identical part from one to the other phone. Yeah. And the phone wouldn't boot because the parts were serialized. It right, actually right, right. refused to work just because it was, identical but not the right one yeah and so they're actually undermined and i think we could do something about that without being too detailed and just say no 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 yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah no i think that you know so the way they're doing it in europe this is one way that europe is different so far in the states when thinking about right to repair is they are mandating that things have to be repairable for a decade right um so i don't think that's too too crazy i mean so, and we also need to think about what the phone is and how much more change it is going to go under. Sure. It's really interesting question to me, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Well, I, mean, I, we I have the same observation, or... which is, you know, how much better can that black rectangle be than the last black rectangle? Exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, there's like the, when Andy and I were on NPR once, they played like a clip and it was Tim Cook doing his thing. And it was like, you know, and this one will be available in forest green. Only he like <laughs> does it in a way that it's like the second coming of Christ walking through the door or right. something. Right. But we knew there was going to be one more thing. Yeah. And it's forest green. <laughs> um, exactly. So yeah. I want to keep going with cars just a little bit because, uh, you know, obviously you have an interest in, and, and, you know, 
it is a conflicted relationship, right? It's a love hate relationship. I, I love my car. I marvel at how yeah. something is, I have a, a Ford edge. It's a humble car. It's almost yeah. 10 years old. I would, I would bet you that there isn't a feature. It isn't better than a 40 year old Rolls Royce. Huh? Faster, safer, yeah, yeah, quieter, yeah, yeah. better seats, more power. This everything's better. Yeah. So, man. Like it's remarkable how, how, Th- that is all improved, right? The, the, the car is yes. so much more, you know, and during the pandemic, every week it would start. Think about back in the 80s oh, when dude, you had a car. If you, you didn't start it every day, you were doomed. I'm totally with you. Yes. Right? So, yeah, I mean, I think way. this is uh, just briefly because I, I love talking about this stuff is I think that when we think about jobs and all kinds of like the environment, there's a bunch of issues where we have real questions, but I don't think we want to underestimate how much things have gotten better and cheaper in like the last 30 to 40 years. Yeah. And like, I think we, for instance, you know, like, so when we think about poverty, we have to think about what that means. Like what is the experience of poverty? And there's all kinds of ways that poverty in the United States, I think is actually undercounted and is bad, just really bad for people. Okay. But one thing that you have to note is that like, um, there's all these ways that they're 30 or 40 years ago, according to certain markers, they're like in the middle class. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for instance, like I heard today, I've heard before it was like 60, but apparently like 90% of the households that are like in the bottom 20 have air conditioning in their places. Sure. Right. You know? And so like, this is super important actually, because when we think about your car, you know, this, this not, it's still like amazing when you compare it with like something 30 or 40 years earlier. Yeah. Not and even so that. I, I may have PCBs in my water, but I got a 60 inch TV kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Like it, there is a de- very different definition of, of poverty. Yeah. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end and this has been, I I've enjoyed this a lot, but we're, we, I only have a couple more questions, Yeah, man. but, yeah. but uh, while we're, while we're talking about vehicles, uh, you're seeing a lot of innovation these days, uh, autonomous vehicles, tunnels. I want to get you going on tunnels, <laughs> um, autonomous vehicles. Uh, uh, do you, do you see any innovation delusion going on here? Or is this like the, the, the 40 years of progress to the great car we are a- allowed to drive now? <laughs> Man. So I think that we're deaf. We are living in a bubble moment in lots of ways, I think, technologically with the, the discourse around things. Okay. The way what I, and that's just a fancy academic way of saying the way people are talking about this crap. Um, and I think that you can see it in the, around the AI discourse, for instance, and the, like the hype that was there in like second machine age come that book by McAfee and Brynjolfsson comes out in like what 2012 or is it 2015? I can't remember. Somewhere in that window, I think that, you know, it goes, the hype even goes up. The second machine age says like AI and robots are going to totally transform everything. And, you know, it's going to be so scary that like, will we even have jobs anymore? And like, oh no, what are we going to do with the poor who don't own the capital and blah, blah, blah. Right. Right? And like the singularity point of view. They even mentioned the singularity at the end of the book, right? Right. But that stuff got taken very seriously by journalists and written up versions of it like all over the place, you know? Um, maybe hitting a crescendo in like 2018, there's there's just tons of hype that year around AI. 
And I think that's turning out just not, I mean, I, I think, you know, people are talking about AI autumns, uh, if not an AI w- winner, the earlier AI mm-hmm. winner is like where funding went way down for AI. I think that narrative is just turning out to not be true. Um, I think that what is happening with like automated systems in corporations is much more complex and interesting actually than the job replacement narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like uh, Jeffrey Funk, who's writing, writing really great stuff on this. He, he shows that like in the next the wave of the future, when it comes to like office applications of AI, for instance, we would expect very small productivity bumps. Hmm. Right. It's just not going to revolutionize organizations the way they're talking about it. There's, it is going to do a lot of interesting things and will be used in interesting ways, but like, like, you know, he goes through the top 40 AI firms working in like that, that space. I think it's just in the office space, but it's like the top 40. And he just looks at what they're trying to do, you know, according to their own statements. And he's just like, this is, this is not lead to like massive productivity shift. Right. You know, I'm more, I'm way more excited about AV, EVs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there, I think the issue is policy making. For EVs, for electric vehicles. Yeah, for electric yeah. vehicles. Well, I mean, I think I think it's true in Canada, but you know, anybody around the world sees more American media. So I'm a little more tuned into what the United yeah. States is doing. And I know that you've got what is it, ten thousand dollars on the hood of an electric car now that you can get as a rebate. Yeah. So, you know, it, that's a pretty powerful signal to the marketplace. And <clears throat> you see Ford yeah. taking it seriously. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm super excited about that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's mixed, there's questions about Biden rolling around in this F-150. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's there's real questions about the F-150 that the F EV versus like other kinds of things, I think. But come on, like if you can sell a Ford F-150, electric Ford F-150 to like a middle, middle America, yeah. God bless you. Like mm-hmm. I, that's a that's a big improvement, I think. Um, so I'm I'm I hope it works. Yeah. Um so second last question. Many of the examples you provide of innovation, uh, you say innovation speak, but also say innovation delusion are really grifts. You know, it's like monorails, right? Yeah. The guy breezes into town says he's got this great solution and then makes money and gets out before the regret and the maintenance phase sets in. Yep. So much of this seems to stem from a perverse set of reward structures or even outright fraud. Mm-hmm. Why do we keep falling for it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, man. I think with... I think you're asking a really deep question about culture and human psychology. And I think we know that when people encounter, I mean, we have all this work now that shows when people encounter information that doesn't fit their worldview, they just radically discount it. They'll even like spend their brain will warm up because they'll be spending (laughs) cognitive energy, like (laughs) trying to shoot it down, you know? Right. Um, And so, you know, innovation let me set aside innovation for one minute and just talk about another simpler topic in technology okay which is the idea that we're experiencing exponential technological change Mm, this is like the singularity stuff okay 
they usually take like Moore's law and then I try to apply it to everything is basically what they're trying to do. Um, but Moore's law doesn't even apply to software. Okay. Like, um, Nathan Ensmanger and other people have written about this, like the productivity gains you get in software, like algorithms are very small. Mm -hmm. Right. And they don't even add up over time. Cause a lot of times like they're, they're mutually exclusive, um, techniques for doing whatever you're trying to do so you know and but here's the thing people have written very persuasively about how the the exponential technological change idea is wrong for decades you know the earliest one i know of is david edgerton has a essay from 1999 where he just like gives an argument and shows like there's no reason to go along with this right but no matter how many good arguments there are, definitive arguments, I believe, truly, um, you don't get uptake in like Reddit or wherever, you know, like where people are discussing technology, like hot technologies. And I think that you see the same thing in lots of spaces, right? Like we know of all the, you know, like I can tell you a story of failure in GE or something about how they chase some stupid idea, you know? And it led to bad things, but you're not going to necessarily see that in your own life, even though you might be doing the same thing, you know? Right. I will, I will confess that the change of technology seems exponential to me. I mean, I do buy into the argument that things are changing faster than ever. And. But where does that show up in the data? Fair enough. I mean, I, I, I did have this conversation and I think that, uh, to say something's changing faster than ever, you need a numerator and a denominator and you need to agree on it and have data that goes back for a long time. Yeah. And that's why Moore's law is so, so resonant because you can say, right. look, I got this many flops out of this many dollars and this many. Yeah. Watts. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so how can we, how, how, if we're going to, if you're going to argue that um, I can't substantiate that there is exponential change, because I don't have the data, what data are you using to conclude it isn't happening? Just like productivity data. Productivity data, okay. Or economic growth. Yeah. Or like any hard economic indicators around organizations, I think, you know? Um, so you asked this earlier, like this goes back in way, so like this question about computers in the economy, mm -hmm. right? So. One, one thing you can do is, um, you can argue that our measures currently are not picking up the change for some kind of reason, right? Mm -hmm. So there's more economic growth or change, economic change happening, but for some reason it's not in the numbers. And I just feel like I have tried, I mean, I have really read that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I can, I, you know, I can point to like, I think the second machine age makes this argument. I don't think it makes it very well. Uh, there's a, there's another paper I like out of Carnegie Mellon that makes it more, um, in it kind of persuasively to me, but it's not like a huge additional change to growth. Right. Honestly, it's not the fifties or sixties. Right. I mean, and so like, you know, like then you have to really say, I think like, where would it show up in the numbers? Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a number, yeah. and I don't even know the answer, but I, I know that one of the arguments that say the world's changing faster than ever is this idea that you're going to have 20 careers in your lifetime. And yeah. 
I, I don't know if, if that supposed trend has materialized that people are changing jobs more frequently. Yeah. Uh, and of course it gets embedded into, you know, the precarious work and other issues that yeah. make it hard to know what's the cause of that. Well, I think Lewis Hyman's book temp is pretty good on this subject. Mm-hmm. And I think that Hyman would say, would say that it has to do with the way labor law and other structures have changed since the 1970s. Right. If you're in a union, you're not changing your job every three months. Or if you're part of a large corporation where you work your whole life, you're not right. doing that either. Um, and the economic structures, this is part of the story too that I want to tell is like, you know, like the, the work thing has just gotten so much more messy since that time, you know? Yeah. People are contractors. They're not employees. I mean, there's just like so many games being played out there right now that it's. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's innovation for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, I think so. I mean, I, I think you should. I like Bill Bommel's paper. It's like entrepreneurship, destructive, non-productive and productive, I think is what it's sure. called. So it's like, um, you know, getting productive would be like just, you know, building a new system or something, right? Non-productive would be like better rent seeking. So if I like, I, if I'm a landlord in Chicago and I come up with a better system for collecting rents, it drops my prices, but mostly I'm just making more money. Society's not benefiting. And then destructive is like criminal activity. And I think that this is, you know, we talk about crack cocaine as like a re- as an actual economic innovation. It's in an book. innovation. Yeah, there it's you absolutely go. an innovation. I mean, this yeah. is why it's crazy to talk about innovation as like an implied good, an automatic good. You know, right. the opioid epidemic is also importantly about in, in part criminal uh, innovations around marketing and, and such. So, yeah. So my, my last question is, we started the show by distinguishing between true innovation and innovation speak. Yeah. Um, is it possible that true innovation can lead us out of the problems caused by the innovation delusion? And if so, where would that innovation have to come from? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that uh, in the, okay. The risk with this book and the maintainers group that I, I started, people should go to the maintainers.org and join our left serve, by the way, um, <clears throat> is that when you when you hear our argument, it's easy to assume that we're like political conservatives, that we're arguing for non-change, mm-hmm. okay? Like I'm a Burkean, like Edmund Burke is my boy or something like that, right? And uh, I'm not, that's not not. Tr- True, right? I actually think that we can use government and other, even corporations, to create change in the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what my first book, Moving Violations, is about. It's about how we use regulation to end up with a better world. Right. Um, and so in the book, we talk about racial justice and the environment are two examples of where we, if this is the end of the book, where we say we need real change here. And let me be we already talked about the environment. So let me talk about the environment. Okay. Getting out of our current mess with the with climate change and all, all these other environmental outcomes is going to take real change. Yeah. And I think that we need to very be actively be using government policies of all sorts, both carrots and sticks. I'm not like automatically a stick guy. You know, I'm not a <laughs> dominatrix or whatever. Like I, uh, you know, we can use carrots where they work. OK, like, let's right. just create change. 
Um, but, you know, here's where the maintainers thing comes in again. We can imagine a kind of Green New Deal that like revolutionizes American uh, infrastructure, but builds a bunch of new crap. And then we right. don't even plan for the maintenance of it. I mean, so like, yes, we're, we're not like saying don't change. There's plates, parts in our culture where we really do need to change. And actual innovation, not innovation speak, will play an important role in that process, right? But even then, we need to be thinking in a more holistic and, and socially beneficial way about how to maintain those things. For sure. Lee, thank you so much for being my guest Dude, today. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, for me too. My guest today was Dr. Lee Vinsel. My name, my name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 